0: We're concluding today our study of the book of Ephesians by going to Revelation chapter 2. Just before I came up, I pulled my phone up and I checked the weather. There is no rain but in Lubbock, so we should be safe. I have friends in San Antonio that listen to the sermon uh, from here on Sunday mornings. They do it in the afternoon. And one of them texts me and says, what was going on during your sermon? Uh, He saw all the buckets around me and everything else. I said, it was interesting, but we had a good time, so we got through it. So today it'll be good and dry. Uh, Before I get into it, I got family with me. They don't want me to do this, but I got four of my grandkids back here. Uh, Emmy and Branson were at camp. Uh, with the kids at the preteen camp, they were some of the leaders that were there, so they joined me today. I got Tyler from uh, san antonio he 's up visiting us this week, and uh, Branson is our oldest and in college and mark my son it 's his birthday today, so you wish him happy birthday he 'll kill me for that, but you can do that. I appreciate it. all right, take your bibles we 're going to be in revelations today and One of the things I did when I was a pastor and I'd bring new staff members, I interviewed new staff members. You had to answer a question and it was a very important question to me that I would ask everybody that I interviewed. The search committee would do most interviewing. I would do the very end, ask a few questions. But one of the questions I always asked was, what is your favorite book of the Bible? And that's an easy question for about anybody that should be in the ministry. But my second question is the one I was interested in. Would you now give me a detailed outline of everything that it says? A detailed outline. And so if they said Ephesians, I'd expect them to give me a one through six chapter, exactly everything said. Somebody asked me one time, why are you doing that? I said, they're to be the teachers in the church. I don't want them to just know a verse. Anybody can pick a verse or two and do it. I want them to understand the entire context. It's their favorite book. They ought to be able uh, to do that. I did have one guy I was interviewing said, Psalms. I said, okay, give me your favorite chapter, Psalms 119. Okay, I I said, I'm going to narrow it down a little bit. I don't know anybody could do Psalms 119 because you got to be able to do it in Hebrew alphabet to make that work good. So I let him off a little bit. But I was always impressed by the guys I hired because they not only had a favorite book, they knew what that book was. Now, I say that because five times since February the 1st, I have overviewed the entire book of Ephesians in detail for you through a sermon. I literally would walk you through the whole thing. I am not going to require that now as an exit interview before we finish the book of Ephesians. But there is something that would help us know if we've learned it. And that's why we're going to the book of Revelations and look at chapter 2 because Jesus gives a report to this church on how well they are doing. And my question always has been, when I do anything like this, how well did it work? I mean, here Paul has poured his heart and soul into this place for a couple years of teaching and, and leading these people, and he's now written them a few years later. Did it work? Was it just words? that people sit and listen to, but then afterwards it has no impact of any kind. So I'm curious. And to be a Christian in Ephesus was not easy. It's not like being a Christian in America, even though it's changing around us, it seems like on a daily basis. It was more, you know, backwards. For those of you who are my age, remember what it's like in church in the 50s and the 60s and 70s. You didn't have a fear of anybody going against your faith. If you did a funeral they were easy to do. Everybody understood what you were talking about. That's all changed since then. But in Ephesus, it was a dangerous place to be a follower of Christ. Ephesus was one of those places. Of the seven churches here, Smyrna, good church, under intense persecution. They suffered for their faith. Jesus' word to them was I want you to stay faithful till you die. That was his encouraging word to the church at Smyrna. Uh, because it was so tough. Uh, Pergama, not such a good church, not a bad church, but not a good church. They lived, it said, in the midst of an evil city. Uh, there was a martyr, one of their members was killed, uh, and they were under extreme pressure. And Jesus will say, I have a few things against you because the pressure was getting to them. And when you get to Thyatira, they were given into the cultural pressures. Church was pretty good, but they were given to cultural uh, pressures, which was of sexual immorality. Jesus called it the deep things of Satan. Some of your people have bought into. And so he's encouraged them. They need to walk away from all that. Sardis, he said, guys, everybody thinks you're a good church. You're dead. Maybe a horrific message to get to your church. Jesus gave that message to Sardis that you're a dead church. And they never did from what I can find in all my studies recovered. Philadelphia, one of the other churches, good church, obeyed his words. Not very big of a church, but a faithful church. They did not deny his name. And Jesus said to them, I'm going to give you guys an open door. You're going to impact the world. with." They pretty much did because of their faithfulness in the midst of this difficult culture. Laodicea was the other one. Laodicea, you know that one. You've heard that enough. They were the lukewarm church that Jesus wanted to spit out of his mouth, literally vomit out of his mouth. Uh, He said, you think you're rich? This is a probably very well-to-do church. Everybody's dressed nice. It's a very amazing city in which to live in. But he says, in reality, you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And and I'm standing at the door, and I am knocking. I am knocking. I just want to get your guys' attention. If you'll let me in, I will be with you. I'll fellowship with you. So that's the gist. This is all within an area, not very big. These cities are all close to each other, and right in the middle of that is Ephesus. A couple things more about Ephesus. There are some very positive things I think would have been fascinating to be a member of this church. You know who attended it? Mary, the mother of Jesus. She lived in Ephesus. She would have been there. That would have to be women. If you went to a women's Bible study and Mary was sitting there, can you imagine the stories you got? And I mean, we sometimes think in some kind of mystical kind of way of everything. No, this is just reality. These are people who walked through this. She'd have been sitting there, which also meant if Mary was there, somebody else was there in this church. John the apostle, the one that Jesus loved, because what did Jesus tell John when he was on the cross? Mary, this is your son. To John, this is your mother. Take care of her. John and Mary lived in Ephesus. John lived there until he was arrested and taken to Patmos. So in this amazing church, you had these two people who literally walked with Jesus, saw what he did, heard what he did. Mary, who was with him his entire life, all the way up to his last breath, and with him when he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. That, to me, would be, man, if this wasn't a great church, there would be really something wrong. It ought to be an amazing place because you literally had source. You could ask questions, and I bet they could be able to answer them. Eusebius said Timothy was the first pastor of Ephesus. And so you have First and Second Timothy that comes to teach him how to be pastor of this from Paul. Aquila and Priscilla were in here at this church. Trophimus was in this. And when Jerusalem fell, many people moved to Ephesus because of the greatness of the church. So, knowing that Timothy's a pastor, John's with him. What a co-team of people leading and, and preaching at the church. But the negatives were, Paul said, you know, when I left, leave here in Acts 20, some bad stuff's going to happen. You're going to get some really bad people coming into here. They're going to be wolves. They're savage wolves. And they're going to try to get you to follow after them and not after Christ. So they're going to get hit hard. And can they stay faithful? Can you listen to John and Timothy or will you listen to someone else? You know, a lot of times you have to make those decisions of understanding who's leading in a godly way. And who is not leading in a godly way? Those are not always easy things to be able to, to decipher. They were going to have to be able to do that. And Paul said, "You got a couple of men, Phygillus and Hermogenes. They're going to be. They're not going to be good. In fact, doesn't the matter they've turned away from me, and they're turning away from the faith." He says, "You got Hymenius and Philatus also there. These are men who've gone astray from the church that were part of the church." He said, "You got men in your church who hold to a form of godliness." but they deny its power, avoid these kind of men. So it was not easy. I mean, I got Mary and I got John, I got Timothy. Paul's come through, but I've also got some really tough influences going on around me. Alexander the coppersmith is in this church. Paul told Timothy, the man hurt me, caused me great harm. He will do the same for you. I need you to stay faithful in the midst of all of this. He didn't tell him, I want you to go take him out. I just want you to stay faithful. Just know he's going to be trouble. So this is not an ideal, perfect situation where you walk in and it's just, you know, easy and fun. No, it was a tough culture. And when you'd walk out of church on Sunday morning in Ephesus. Now, I don't know how they met. I don't know what kind of building they met in. But when you walked out, you know what you'd have seen? The Temple to Diane. The Temple to Diane was right there. Seven Wonders of the World. 127 columns in the Temple of of Diana, 60 feet tall. I'm guesstimating because your auditorium is about the size of my auditorium in San Antonio. Uh, I think mine was a little bit bigger, but it went 45 feet to the center, so I don't know how tall it is up there. I'm sure those of you who changed lights, you know exactly how tall it is, but it's 45 60 feet tall for the columns, stone columns, 127 of them. I think it'd be taller, maybe or equal to your steeple when you're standing outside. This, field, this temple was 450 feet. That would be the equivalent of a football field with the end zone plus 10 more yards on the outside and was wider than the football field. This thing was so stunning and impressive, it literally led to people calling it the seven wonders of the world. So when I walk out, the cultural influence is staring me in the face every single day. People pressured me to be a part of what has been the culture. In Ephesus, the temple of Diane, they were the ones who held that. That was important to them. They're the ones who, this was their God, above all the other people who would come and worship there. It belonged to the people of Ephesus. You would have had to deal with all of that going there. And Timothy is executed later on as pastor. He was 80, he was still pastoring, and he was literally beaten to death by the people of Ephesus. So he fulfilled what Paul told him to do, and he said, join with me in the suffering. Follow, do not be ashamed of me or of the gospel. He stayed faithful to the very, very end. So was that as that is a basis, how did this church do? Stand up with me, I'll read the passage in verse one through seven. You follow along as I read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Not going to deal with that at all, but that's Jesus. We already know that from the first chapter. I know your deeds and your toils, your perseverance. You cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have Have perseverance. You have endured for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have left. Your first love. Therefore what I want from you. Is I want you to remember where you've fallen. I want you to repent. I want you to do the deeds you were doing at first. And if you don't. I'm coming to you. And I'm going to remove the lampstand. Remove it out of it's place. Unless. You repent. Yet this you do have. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but you hate them also, and I'm grateful for that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, help us to see, especially that key point there in verse 4, bring it home to us, because that is a danger that all of us in this room can face in our walk with you. Watch over and guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Where Jesus didn't really have much good to say to Sardis, he does have good to say to this church. What did they learn? Well, first of all, they finished what they started. In verse 2, he talks about their deeds. Remember back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we his workmanship created for good works, so walk in them, is what he says. They did do that. They, they were willing to follow through. He said, I know your deeds, your toils, your labors. You've put in the, the amount of work that I needed you to do. You've stayed in the midst of all of that, and you kept doing it. You were persevered. You did right. You got up. You did it. You stayed with it. You know, one of the great things about coming to Christ is he gives you these new desires, like going to camp, a couple of you talking about. But staying with it, you, you don't realize how important those kind of things are. It's easy to do anything once, but over and over you know, one of the things I've loved about sitting here all summer listening to your trips and camps and your mission trips is you did something similar. We did it in San Antonio. You keep going back to some of the same places, building relationships, doing those kind of things. There's something about when you and I come to Christ that one of the great works he does is, is we don't, do not quit. I was raised by Wilma Branson. She was tough. She, she had a, a rough upbringing and she... It was a pretty tough mom raising me up. And I remember one time coming home from football practice, and I'd been beat up so badly it wasn't even funny. And I, I came walking in the house. I, there wasn't a spot of me that wasn't hurting. I'd been run over. And remember, I'm a little guy out on the football field. And on that day going home, I said, I've had, a, I've had enough. I'm, I'm not playing anymore. He says, yes, you are. You'll be back out there tomorrow. I said, why? I don't, I don't want to do this. You're going back out tomorrow. You started it, you're going to finish. Son, anything we start, we finish. And so I went back. I'm glad she did that because I ended up having a blast where the season was over with and ended up having a good season during all that time. There's one of the great things that you and I have to have, and that's perseverance. And this church had it. They were very faithful. They did the work that God called them to do. The second thing is they were very careful in the men that they followed. They didn't tolerate evil men. They didn't support them. They didn't bear with them, such as Alexander the coppersmith. In fact, what they do is they put them to the test. They would try them. They would make them prove, in a sense, that they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's there. John gives us a test. And I bet he used a similar one because in 1 John 4, 2, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. John gave other tests in 1 John. They would put that to the test. They would gauge and look at somebody. They would expect that if you confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior, that you would bear fruit that demonstrates the very presence of Christ within your life. And if they found them to be false, then they would not give them any positions of any kind to be able to do that. You know, there's three things you watch for among false teachers, false leaders, and they simply are this. Arrogance, money problems, sexual issues. Peter details that in 2 Peter. And Jude also in his letter details those kind of things. So when they would sense anything that let them know that something was wrong, they would not bear with it. They wouldn't have anything. Now, Paul doesn't say go out and beat them up and do all that kind of stuff. He never did that. Whenever Alexander Coppersmith calls all kinds of troubles for Paul and hurt Paul, he just tells Timothy, I just want you aware of this. You just need to be aware of it so you you listen and know that you don't need to pay attention to what's going on. This church was good at it. And I'm sure having John there had to be helpful beyond imagination. They could ask him, What are we doing at this point? What about this? What about that? And his insights and understanding. But then he comes back to something I've already hit in verse three. They never wear out in life. And this is something I really like. And this is something I'm trying to develop in my life throughout my years of ministry, and that is this. He says you have two qualities that are critical in your walk with Christ, perseverance and endurance. I hit that a minute ago, but I hit it again because Jesus does. You stay under the load. You don't run when life gets tough. Endure you, it literally means to pick it up. You keep going. Nothing will stop you in your walk with Jesus. If you truly have met Christ and Christ now lives in you, your life will give evidence of that and no matter what happens to you in life, no matter the difficulties that may come your way, you're going to walk with him. Nobody is going to stop you from walking with Christ and that's what they were doing. But what I love next is what he then says. He says, "You have perseverance and endurance and you do not grow weary." Perfect tense may not mean anything to you, but to me that tells me in in interpreting this passage is they never got weary. They never got tired. They took serious their walk. Nobody discouraged them from their commitment to who Christ was. I'll tell you, I guess the one thing I kind of struggle with sometimes with with people is, is those who finally, they're just stressed out about anything and everything. I just need to get away for a little bit. I just need to get away for a little bit. I've never understood that. The away does not solve the problems. What I need to do is understand why I'm there, what God's doing within my life. I need to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. I need to walk with him. And I'm not going to get worn out by what's happening. I always wonder why we allow people to, almost like we're puppets and they're pulling our strings, and when things don't go right, we just want to quit and run away. That's not happening. Christ gave me life. He has said he will never leave me nor forsake me. He has told me he is with me always. He has told me that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This church gave evidence of that in a difficult culture. They stayed faithful in the midst of all that was going on. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. One last thing that he said to them, and that had to do with the immorality of the culture. Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas, who's one of the disciples, the deacons in Acts chapter 6 more than likely who turned false later on. Because sometimes that happens. But they did not follow that. And they had the same attitude as Jesus. But you bring all this together. You've got a, an amazing work going on. Paul got it started. you got John. you got Mary there. you got Timothy given pastor. And scripture says his church grew mightily. And the word of God prevailed mightily. And they impacted the culture dramatically. And Jesus years later looks back and says, Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for how you've handled it and you're not quitting and not worn out by everything that you're facing. See, grace leads to good life. Grace leads to good work because grace leads to new life. Grace leads to standing firm and grace leads to even greater knowledge of who Jesus is. Is what Paul prayed for them in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. We could quit there and say, Paul's letter worked. But there is a danger here. And this is where I really want to spend the rest of our time. It's verse 4. There's a serious warning in this passage that all of us, all of us, myself included, need to take notice. Jesus looks and says to them, I have this against you. This is major enough that he's calling them repentance twice. Twice, he's going to say, if you don't get this together. And he tells them this, if you don't listen, I'll shut it down. You'll not be a church any longer. I will take the lampstand away. I will tell you, my first staff position out of seminary in 1979, I got a call from Fourth Avenue Baptist Church in Port Arthur, which was taking me home. I had been gone from home for several years My mom and dad had just moved back from Canada. Dad was back running the refinery, uh, DuPont and and Sabine River Works. And so I was going to go back to where I grew up. Port Arthur was where Branson's lived for almost 100 years. And so I was excited about that. Fourth Avenue had been a great church for many years. Big church in in Port Arthur there on Thomas Boulevard in the corner of Fourth Avenue. And so I went, had a great time there, getting through the interview, and I'm excited. I get there on a Monday. Uh, we, Jan and I packed everything we owned in her pacer, but then we decided to sell the pacer just the day before we left. And so she was in a Chevy Chevette. So everything we owned was in the Chevy Chevette. So you can realize how poor we were heading out. And there we go. I've got the U-Haul. She's got the Chevy Chevette. She had never driven a standard until that day and my mom was in the car with her so she was a nervous wreck before though with but we got to port out there and we're excited we're in the ministry this is what i've worked for i go to a prayer meeting on wednesday cuz i'm the minister of education i'm the minister of youth i'm the minister of children i'm the ministry of i've got the minister of evangelism job i got the bus ministry job i had everything nobody else wanted they gave it to me i didn't care i had a job and i wanted to do it i go to prayer to a teachers meeting they had everybody there. They did the old Baptist way for a teacher's meeting. I sit down. The guy, Mr. Woodall, comes in. He opens his Bible. I told him, you lead it. I still don't know what I'm doing. I'll watch and learn today. So he opened his Bible and he looked at it. <laughs> slams it shut. Looked at me and said, you should have never come. This is a bad church. That was my first night of worship in the church I was now on staff. And he left. I got up and followed him and said, I don't know any better. What's going on? He said, you shouldn't have come. You should, you, we lied to you about everything. That'll bless you. <laughs> I got the pastor. I got the chairman of the deacons. I got the chairman of the committee. And I got this guy who was on the committee. I brought him off and I said, you guys tell me what's going on. And they did. I later got accused of holding a secret meeting Because the pastor missed prayer meeting that day as they poured out their soul. It was bad. It was the worst thing I'd ever could imagine. We had a business meeting two weeks later, still the worst business meeting of all times. I heard more four letter words on the floor of the church than I've ever heard my entire life. I stayed for a year and then the Lord let me go to San Antonio. They closed two years later. When God says, I'll shut it down, he did it. They were your size. He shut it down and they closed. So what Jesus is saying here is critical to all of us. So what is it? You left your first love. You left your first love. Let's look at maybe Jeremiah at this moment. Jeremiah says, remember concerning the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothal. He was talking about when the Lord brought... The nation of Israel out of Egypt. I led you through a dark land in a wilderness. I brought you to a fruitful land. I took care of you. It's a detailed explanation. I took care of you. But then after a while, you walked away from me. You walked after emptiness and became empty. You handled the law, but you didn't even know who I was. You've gone far from me. You're religious, but there's no passion anymore. The love is gone. That was Israel. I think of Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 9. I love Ecclesiastes. This is the wisest man who ever lived. But the wisest man who ever lived was a broken man towards the end. He died at the age of 60. If you read the last chapter, it shows that physically as a 60, he was in really bad shape. He gives an explanation of what being elderly is and the physical problems you have when you become elderly. He was already there in his late 50s. Worn out by all that had gone on. And he unfolds it. But when he gets to chapter 9, he says something. I don't know. I've never heard anybody else really deal with much. But he says, you really want to know what life's about? And he was more focused on the family part of it. But what he said was this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat a good meal. Drink your wine. Put on your good clothes. Fix up your face. And love the wife of your youth. I thought that's a fascinating insight from this man who had a 1,000 wives. Well, 300 wives, 700 concubines. But somewhere after all these years, when he looks back on life, he realized all the riches he had, all the wisdom they he had, everything. That's not life. Life is just a good meal, sitting with family and friends putting on a decent set of clothes, fixing yourself up, and just enjoying. And somehow in the midst of that, he realized that little girl that he loved, that first one, that's where life was. And he had left the love of his life. And as an old man writing to all of us in Ecclesiastes, he's just reminding us again, I missed it, you don't. This is what life is about. So using Jeremiah in that, What is being said to the church at Ephesus? Well, Ephesus has been an amazing story of God's grace. They're in the most pagan of places, and God has done the most dramatic of work and called these people out of darkness into light. He has given them the greatest gift you can ever ask for. They were dead in their trespasses and sin. He has made them alive in Christ Jesus. He has adopted them into his family. He has blessed them with the kingdom of God. And they get to be a part of all that God's doing in his creation, bringing it all to fulfillment when Christ comes in all of his glory. And then on top of that, he's given them the ability to do this. He's given them life. He's given them some awful special people to be in their church. To have Mary sitting in the middle of that, or John there to be able to teach, literally tell you, I was with him here and I was with him there. They had some of the greatest insights ever, and they were strong when it came to the doctrine. But somewhere along the way, they lost their passion, their love of Christ. See, that's a danger that all of us can face, those who have been in church a very, very long time. Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then when you do that, you'll love your neighbor as you love yourself. What have they lost? What's the thing that they lost? You know, I, I've done sermons on Revelations 2, 1 through 7, but I've never done it from this perspective. And I sat there all week, this week, whenever I would pull my notes up and, and rewrite. I rewrote yesterday, or Friday evening, I sat down and rewrote the whole thing again But I kept wondering, what did they lose? I know know it's love, but how best can I get that to us? And it dawned on me something that Paul said in Philippians 3.1. He said, rejoice in the Lord. It is a safeguard. It is a safeguard. I've never quite noticed that before. Our rejoicing is a safeguard. And what that means is it protects us. You know what I think they've lost? I think they've lost their joy. They show up faithfully. They listen to Timothy bring a sermon. They may listen to John as he shares a testimony. Maybe they sit there and go and talk you know, to their friends. we got Mary in our church. She was with Jesus. But there's no joy about all of this. Jeremiah is going to say this, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Somewhere along the way, and I think one of you young guys just a minute ago said that about you know something, but you can lose, I almost remember, maybe I heard it somewhere else. But if you know all this, sometimes you get to know but forget what he's really done for us. It's us. It's you he brought into his kingdom. It's you who he now resides in. It's you that he has promised everlasting life to. It's you that he's promised that what he starts in you, he's going to bring it to completion. You ought to be so joyful over that all the time. And showing up every Sunday, not lose that. Not let others rob you. Could they have been robbed of this? Probably with all the hardships. With all the dangers of walking with Christ within the culture. With some of the false teachers who made havoc within their church. Could they have lost it? Evidently they had because Jesus is looking at them and saying, If you don't repent of this, I'm going to close your church. Because see, a church that doesn't have joy and does not have love for God and love for each other is not a church. Might as well be a Lions Club. Do some good deeds. Have a membership role. Do those kinds. See, what sets us apart from any other organization around is we're the people saved by grace who have a love for the Father, a love for each other, and there's joy. And so when we gather on Sunday morning and we sing, we sing with joy. Joy. If you'd have been with me at 4th Avenue during the year I was there, you could hear a pin drop during the song service. And I am not being facetious nor stretching it any little bit because everybody just standing there. Well, you don't sing if you don't have joy. You sing when there's joy in your heart. I think that's one of the reasons God closed it. i never forget, I led a young man to the Lord and brought him to church. Troubled background like you can't imagine. He was about my height. He was strong as an ox, and one day I had him at my house. I had a barbell there with 100 pounds on it. He walked over, and he picked it up, and he did this. Now, you guys who like to lift weights, he took that 100 pounds, and he held it. I couldn't hit my strongest when I was doing good, hold that without a second or two without the weight coming back down, and he sat there and held it. This happened one Sunday evening when the deacons didn't want him in the church. We don't need people like him in our church. And he walked over and said something to this kid that I would led to the ward, about a 21-year-old kid from Louisiana. And that kid, I saw his fist go like this, and he swung at my old deacon. I caught it, and I held it, and I didn't let go. And I grabbed him and walked with him out the door. When you don't care and you lose your joy, you don't care about anybody You just want your own little place. See, guys, there's a danger that you and I have been in church so much that we've lost this amazing gift that we've been given. Oh, it's still there, but we just have lost the joy of it. Now, I'm not accusing anybody in here of that. Jesus gives a warning. That's what this is about so that we don't. That we don't lose this. We're the most blessed. He said that in in Ephesians 1. You're the most blessed people in all the world. Live out the blessings of God in your life. He chose you before the foundation of the world, He predestined that you be a part of His family. Christ's blood is cleansed and forgiven you of all things. He's given you hope, He's allowed you to understand a little of the mystery of all that He's trying to accomplish in this world. And he has given you the spirit of God as a down payment that means one day he will finish it. How can I not get excited about that every day? I don't mean you have to go ecstatic, crazy excited, but just get up with a quiet joy in your heart, ready to live today. That's why these people didn't quit. They had learned that, but somewhere along the way they lost the joy. They had the determination to keep fighting, but the joy was gone. And Jesus says, you've left your first love. So now the million-dollar question becomes, as I wrap down real quickly, is this. Did this work? Did what Jesus say work? You say, well, we don't know because we can't. Nothing more is said in Scripture. Well, a decade after John wrote this, 10 years after he wrote this, Ignatius wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. He praised the local believers for their patient endurance and the resistance to deceit which jesus noted he praised them because they had some evil teachings from syria that had came through but then he commends them you being one with our lord and your love with our lord and his being able to use you in the most amazing of ways so you know what i know the people heard the word You know, a lot of times somebody will bring something like this and go, well, he's just trying to make me look bad or feel bad. No, what we want to do is simply this. I want us all to enjoy our walk with our Lord. I want us all to finish well. I want us all to be able to stand in his presence and hear, well done, thou get in, faithful servant. It's a long haul for most of us, and life can get very difficult, but we keep putting one foot in front of the other as Christ leads and guides in our life. And what we want more than anything else is for God to be glorified. I close with this. I used this last week. I'll use it again. I told you I had dinner with the guy who is the voice of the TCU Horned Frogs. I have thought about that and used this statement last week, but I've thought about it all week long. Man, it's the very essence of what God's called in our life. Because I was sitting there at the, at, at, um, at the ribeye place, and we were sitting next to him, and I said, what makes a great announcer? What makes a, uh, you know, what, what are you trying to accomplish being an announcer? And he said, when you're sitting there in the stadium and you're on that thing that magnifies your voice across the TCU stadium or at the, he's done the AT&T stadium for the big 12 um, playoff game. He's done all of that kind of stuff. He says, when you're doing that, you don't want anybody to know that you're the one doing it. You want to be anonymous because if they're talking about you, then you've done a terrible job of announcing the game. And I have thought about that. Is that not what we're supposed to be doing in Christianity? We're not doing this for show. Did you know that the false people who came to Ephesus, that they were told that these men would get you, the people of Ephesus, Paul saying to that group, you, they're going to get you to follow after them. Not after Jesus, but after them. And that's one of the warnings that they had to know what to look for. Who are you calling me to follow? My friend that's the announcer says, you don't want them to know you were up there doing that. You want them to walk away talking about the game and what happened on the field. Well, you know what? As you live your life, you live it with a joy. You've been blessed beyond imagination. Christ in you, the hope and the certainty of glory. You live that every single moment. And then along the way, you're not doing any of this You don't go to mission trips or camps or teach Sunday school or stand in the pulpit. You don't do that for glory. You do that just to help each other along the way. We need each other. We're the body of Christ. We help each other along the way. And we're not doing it for recognition. We're doing it so that our God will be glorified in and through us. Paul's letter worked. My prayer is that what you've learned this will make you stronger in your walk with Christ, make your character improve even more dramatically, make your life be morally clean, make family life better in the midst of a difficult world. And when the tough days come, the armor of God will work for you in the most dramatic of ways as you stand firm. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you've given us to study your word. It's good sometimes to go back and look from a different perspective. I pray it's been a help today as we've looked at this perspective of what happened in Ephesus afterwards and what the danger was. And Father, I know for all of us that life can get to the point that sometimes it's pretty tough. And if we're not careful, we just lose our passion, our joy. Lord, don't allow that to happen to any of us. Keep reminding us over and over again of the gift that you've given us through your son, the Lord Jesus. May we have great appreciation for that so that we will live our lives, not so that people will take notice, but they'll be pointed to Jesus so that we'll see more of what we saw this morning in the baptistry of another one coming to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So Father, continue your good work in and through us is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.